The epistle is written in the third chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, beginning at the first verse. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Here endeth the epistle. The Holy Gospel is written in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning at the 21st verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remembers that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole of your body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, foot, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to thee, O Christ. May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's hard for us in our contemporary or comparatively liberal environment to grasp what the law meant to the Jew. Israel is not just a set of beliefs about God, but it's a comprehensive way of life filled with rules and practices affecting every aspect of one's life, what you can do when you wake up in the morning, what you can and cannot eat or wear, how to ensure your ceremonial purity, how to conduct business, when you can marry, how to observe the Sabbath. It could and often did become a kind of tick list of things to do or to abstain from in order to gain God's approval. What then would be the difference when Jesus came with his promise of a new kingdom to challenge and change the obligations which are the life of the old kingdom to those appropriate to the new Israel? Would there be even stronger rules of conduct for believers or would all rules be a thing of the past as we are set free to live the life of the Spirit. Sometimes Jesus' actions shocked strict Jews when he appeared to turn a blind eye to what they considered to be his obvious duty under the law. And the question of law has troubled the church throughout its history. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this question of the place of the law in the new kingdom. I am come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Here, obviously, is the guiding principle, but what does it mean? And he proceeds to illustrate this fulfillment with a number of examples of murder, adultery, and oaths, or in the new regime, which become anger or hatred, lust or deviousness. In each case, he sets out the Old Testament position and then shows how in the New Testament the demands are far more fundamental, affecting not merely what we do, but what we are, by directing attention to the thoughts and intentions within us which shape us and give direction to our lives. So he starts with what a modern lawyer might categorize as offenses against the person, the greatest of which is murder, the taking of another's life. To take life is so serious a matter, irreversible, outrageous, final and horrifying, especially when that life is young and innocent. Of course, there are great questions about the taking of life. Should we go to war for any reason? Should it ever be right for the state to take life with capital punishment? 
is it ever right to terminate the life of a fetus at any stage of pregnancy? Is it right to assist someone moving towards the conclusion of life to bring that life to an earlier end? All these are great questions facing us in our generation. But Jesus is addressing a more limited issue, that of personal violence, the result of anger. The Pharisee found that not too demanding, so long as he could keep his hands clean. His mind might be full of evil thoughts and darkness, but the Torah judged not thoughts but actions. For the law, it was the doing that mattered, the outworking of the state of mind lying behind the act. But now, in the kingdom of Jesus, it is that state of mind which is being brought under judgment. In the heart lie anger, resentment, envy, malice, revenge. Here are the primary sins which run counter to the call that we should love one another and which, if allowed to fester and grow, will or may express themselves in violence and even death. We may or may not take up the knife or the gun, but to allow anger to take root uh, in our minds and to drive our actions is sin. It is anger, or as the authorized version put it, anger without a cause, focused on our personal frustrations and which diminish the value of the person against whom it is directed, who may be thought of as raka, no more than a fool. We are urged then to act quickly and decisively to deal with such thoughts, for the danger is that they may come to dominate our beings and gain control of our lives. Then Jesus makes a powerful comment about worship, for worship is the highest duty of man. If you're about to offer your gift on the altar and remember that you are not in love and charity with one of your neighbors, set your gift to one side for a moment and deal with the problem. Go and seek reconciliation, for how can you offer sincere worship to God and expect to enter his presence whilst your own sinful thoughts remain undealt with. Be reconciled to your brother. It is costly and it may involve costly humility on your part, but your adversary is a brother. In many cases, it's only by the grace of God that true reconciliation can be found. Of course, in a civilized society, there are ways and means of disposing of disputes. That is what courts and judges are for. But it's costly in many ways. So work for reconciliation. And surely part of the responsibility of the church is to create in society a way of making peace and a desire for peace that it may flourish. And then Jesus turns to lust. And again, it is a desire with self at the center and with a lack of respect for the object of that desire. 
the Pharisee would content himself by avoiding adultery itself. But immediately Jesus addresses the underlying causes, the desire, the unchecked imagination, the unsatisfied curiosity. Its modern expressions are often in porn and for the young in sexting. Here is the root and origin of the offence, and if unchecked, it may lead on to danger and regret and guilt. It is the desire for something that is not ours to possess. Jesus makes his point in a strange way, imagining that various parts of our anatomy are independent agents plotting our downfall and must be ruthlessly pruned in order that the health of the rest of the body may be preserved. It's an exaggerated teaching, but does strongly make the point that we need to deal decisively and immediately with deviant thoughts and motivations. Then Jesus makes a short deviation into the vexed issue of divorce, too great a subject and regretfully too important to deal with today. But again, Jesus is surely emphasizing that it is wrong to use a mere technicality to obtain freedom from the obligations of marriage by giving the wife a certificate of divorce. Sadly, relationships do sometimes fail, but the marriage should only be brought to an end if every other step has been explored and there is no alternative. But that leaves oaths. Again, it seems that the Pharisees tried to restrict the obligation by making elaborate rules for the taking of vows. They shifted attention from the vow itself and the need to be faithful to the technicality of the formula used, the equivalent, I suppose, of crossing one's fingers behind one's back. And again, Jesus calls for transparency, for honesty in all our dealings. Jesus has been reminding us that we are salt and light in the corruption and darkness which so often describe our world of which we are part and which so easily draw us away from the light and which sometimes will spill over into the church community. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world If we externalize our obligations as the Pharisees did, if we think our inner thoughts and motives can remain unseen and unknown and so do not matter, we deceive ourselves. For we need that salt and light to be the reforming agents of our inner lives as well as in the life of society. When Jesus summarized the law, he said that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. The emphasis is all on the need positively to love, the compulsion to love, love which operates at the deepest level of our beings, love which is pure and selfless, powerful and peaceful, love which challenges the unjustifiable anger and the destructive violence and corruption and vice and deception, love which transforms all our relationships. 
in a sermon recently uh, as he comes to his retirement, the Bishop of London, said that one of his inspirations for his own ordination and ministry was his brother, who, though severely brain-damaged, had a genius for love. To love in all our relationships in society is indeed a challenge. Jesus called us to be perfect as I am perfect. As then we read these verses, we meet Christ himself. We see him enduring sinners with patience, turning the other cheek, remaining silent, reaching out to those who abused him. But he was always pure, always transparent, always selfless. Here in Jesus is our model. It is by his spirit alone that we may hope to fulfill the law. Amen.